0: Welcome to Making Waves, a monthly show about sound art, produced for WGXC Wave Farm by New Adventures in Sound Art. On last month's show, we featured performances by Ellen Waterman. They were recorded outdoors in a rural environment, where her flute improvisations responded to the natural surroundings. And uh, those performances were interpretations of an instructional score called Bodily Listening in Place, and uh, that... Today's show will explain that text score and um, give you uh, the background and research uh, behind it uh, and encompasses many uh, reference points, uh, improvisation, deep listening, signed music, and also music making across all abilities. We welcome you to contribute uh, your own creative responses to this text score. You can find details about it at nasa.ca. Here's my interview with Ellen Waterman bodily listening in place uh, perhaps uh, Ellen you can expand on what that's about and uh, what is bodily listening let's start with that
1: okay what I what I really mean by bodily listening is uh, an idea that listening is you know as we as every sound oriented person knows listening is not hearing right that listening is something that happens well beyond one sense. Uh, if I'm playing my flute, I, I uh, even in a standard concert setting, there's a haptic sense. I feel the instrument in my hands. Uh, the mouthpiece of the instrument, the head joint is at my mouth, right, right on my face. That's a very intimate tactile experience. Uh, my body moves as I play. And uh, and of course, there's the visual environment, right? But for me, especially improvising, I have long had a practice of trying to isolate out all the other senses, close my eyes, bathe in that intimate, you know, wash of sound, which of course as a flutist is happening right by my ear. It's because most of the sound from the flute happens at the the mouth hole and and to exclude other sensors. I'm aware of them, but not not really using them to make the music. So bodily listening is both an attempt to foster an intersensory approach to improvisation, to de-center sound and audition from my practice. Uh, Of course it's there, of course it's important. But to concentrate intentionally on other sensory information that was always already there, but that I wasn't paying attention to. It's so, it's, in some ways, it's completely simple and obvious, and in other ways, it's been a very challenging process to, to, to change that, um, what you might think of as a listening habitus, you know, how you're used to listening and, and, and use your body in a new way
0: this is in the context of improvisation rather than playing scored music uh so when you're playing you're playing in response to your environment what you see uh what your feet might perceive and what the wind on your face or other things like that is that that's what you mean
1: yes that is what i mean um you know i have a a long history of Making music in environmental settings, both scored music and improvised music. In the late 80s through the late 90s, I frequently performed with Armory Schaefer in several Patria environmental theater productions, uh, particularly in the the piece called And Wolf Shall Inherit the Moon. This is a piece that takes place in the Halliburton Forest just south of Algonquin Park for a week. To 10 days in August. And the idea there is that uh, the piece unfolds as a series of rituals throughout the day. Music at dawn, listening times, storytelling times, music at dusk, and and other kinds of, of mixed media kind of rituals. Theatrical, dance, musical events. And there's no audience. Everybody is a participant. So in that context, I had lots of experience doing something like, uh, it's my turn to play the dawn music. And so at five o'clock in the morning in August, you get out of your cold tent and you have your cold flute. And if you're lucky, somebody even more intrepid has started a fire at the kitchen. And you go and warm yourself up and then go to the edge of the water because playing out over the water through mist is going to amplify the flute beautifully. and then. I would play, in this case, often a scored piece that Schaefer had written for solo flute for me called Obad. No warm up, no blowing in advance, no sounds, because the whole idea is that the music should come out of nothing and, and be the first sounds that enter people's waking consciousness in their tits. Now, this experience, of course, made it uh, absolutely clear that temperature, uh, the, the beautiful visual surroundings, mist rising off the water, uh, birds and other other forest creatures, light changing as the dawn, you know, the sun comes up. All of these things really impacted the way I would perform his piece, or if I was improvising, the way I would improvise. Um Temperature is a particularly important one for flute because it changes the pitch. If you're cold, it's harder to move your fingers. You know, your, your whole body is impacted by those cold early morning temperatures. And uh, wind is another one. That's, I mean, one reason to play at dawn, as you know, is that the wind is, is kind of lower, at least before the sun starts to rise. And then that gives the flute a bit more of a chance. But as the wind comes up, the wind is, acting in a dynamic way with the blowing that the, that a flutist is doing sometimes the wind will literally take the the breath right out mm-hmm. of your mouth and, and interrupt the sound so i mean i knew that all of these things were were part of playing in an, in a special environment and i and i knew how potent it is to spend time in a place so the place part of bodily listening in place but i hadn't really thought about it in terms of my own overall practice. Um, and so my motivation for doing the score, Bodily Listening in Place, has, a, has some other layers to it as well.
0: So let's explain what the score is. Uh, so it's a text score, which is an instructional score. Um, this kind of practice maybe began in the 60s with the Fluxus artists, that would instead of making a painting or uh, doing a performance, they would kind of have a set of instructions, a kind of recipe for an action for something to happen um, and this starts for that, but it goes beyond that. uh Maybe explain how the tech score uh what that is and and what you want to achieve from it,
1: yeah. Well, I think there's sometimes a notion that improvisation is pure spontaneity, right? That you're just, that everything that happens improvisationally is happening in the moment. But in fact, that's, that's not my view and not a lot of other improvisers' view. Uh, George Lewis, the great trombonist and, and computer guy and, and writer on improvisation, he talks about improvisation in terms of being a, a social location that you choose to inhabit. In other words, something that you bring your history your body, your, uh, your positionality in the world. You bring those things to that moment of improvising. So we're always improvising in a context. We're always improvising in relation to something, other people or the material environment. So a text score offers, a, a, the score offers a set of guidelines for preparing to improvise and for becoming aware of the environment that you're in, and particularly for becoming aware of your bodily placement in that environment. Um, yeah, so, so, so the idea is it offers a little bit of structure, but it doesn't suggest anything about what the musical details of, of what somebody would create would be, right? So on a basic level, it's an invitation to to expand your listening sensibility by focusing on all the information that's available to you in your body within a particular place that you've spent a little bit of time in, a little bit of time getting to know, observing, reacting to.
0: So it's not just go out and play uh, as you would normally, but to uh, take into account y- where you are and how you feel about that place, and have that inform what comes out.
1: Absolutely, and there's there's a, a, a like a there's an another layer to it that's important to me, and what really um, prompted me to try to change my listening habitus, and. This was becoming aware of a genre of music out of Deaf culture called signed music, which I learned about from a really wonderful musician, Pamela Witcher. Signed music is entirely visual and gestural. It does use uh, sign language signs, but sometimes in in you know, semantic ways and sometimes in quite abstracted ways. The first time I saw a, a, a piece, I was really struck by how musical it is. You know, rhythm, texture, layers of lines, uh, formal structures that felt very musical to me. But it's a challenging concept, right? It, the idea that one might have a, a whole genre of music where sound is completely absent from it. You mentioned Fluxus a moment ago, and of course there are Fluxus pieces that also are completely um, uh, are are completely conceptual in that way. But this is slightly different. So you you know I uh, I'm I'm really pulling this out of my head, and I might be misquoting, but I think of Yoko Ono's pieces where you. Uh, you release some butterflies, and that's the piece of music, right? Conceptually, that's that's in a similar vein. But signed music is a performance practice; it's something you could go to a concert and see, or you could uh, you could see a video version where maybe video techniques become part of the you know layering and, and texture of the piece. So I, I that really got me thinking about well. If, if it's clear to me that Pamela Witcher is listening intensely, then what is listening? And, and here I think it, it, there, are, there are already answers out there.
0: Well, uh, there has been references in the f- film world, experimental film to visual music, um, to early uh, uh, filmmakers, working with uh, rhythmic patterns visual patterns there's the vertov movie uh, yes. man with a movie and, camera yeah. how much is it like that or how much was it would it be like a watching a contemporary dance performance with no sound
1: uh, so so signed music is uh, s- practitioners of signed music make a distinction between signed music ASL poetry and dance in Deaf culture. They, they're really developing, it's a new music, right? It's a, it's a new genre. They're really developing this explicitly as a musical practice. So in that sense it's it's got resonance with both sign poetry and with, with the dance. Um, and probably for a hearing person it looks dance-like or like an experimental performance piece with no sound. Um, but I'm I'm really conscious here of, of my score as being part of, or at least my practice of bodily listening in place. I consider it an ongoing practice, not just a score. That part of my practice here is to engage in that intercultural encounter with deaf culture, Be, between hearing and deaf culture. How, how do we come to a kind of understanding of of, listen, of listening? that crosses those those boundaries, right? And, and I'm not talking about a binary, because of course, you know, there's all kinds, it's a complete spectrum. I don't know about you, but my hearing is far from perfect. And, you know, changes all the time as we age, and many deaf people hear as well as, as uh, in, in varying degrees. So it's, it's not about our capacity to hear. It's about our capacity to understand.
0: Well, I think that there, they say that music comes from a different part of the brain uh, uh, than language. Uh, that, uh, for instance, uh, people who have uh, um, some difficulties with memory uh, does not seem to affect their musical memory. Um, and uh, so I was wondering if this is a parallel, is that when you're experiencing sign music, is it happening in a different area of the brain, I wonder? Um I mean I guess we don't know the answer to that but it makes me wonder that 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 way that I mean uh, I think that sound has a continuum uh but our brains kind of provide the filter where on the continuum it is whether you know you know if I go you know is that music is it uh is it yeah, a, baby. is it a panicked response is it <laughs> is it you know is it something you know or is it a you know a form of language or like there's uh, where on the spectrum do I put that, you know, at any given time? Well,
1: of course, that's about context, right? You know, if that's a, an argument that's been made about art generally. It's art if I, if my intention is to make art, right? If your intention of going blah, 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 is, is to put a, a sonic creative gesture out there that is artistic, then in a way, there's no conversation to be had. I, I'm going to accept that that's what you're doing. But I, I have been surprised by the reaction from several hearing musicians that I've talked about sign language music to, especially if they, if they haven't encountered it before, who will say, well, that's, you know, now it's just anything. It might be art, I could see it as art, but it's not music, right there. And I don't understand this kind of um, uh, semantic territory, territorialism, right? I'm not very interested in that, I guess. Um, I am I'm more interested I think in the feeling right and, and and here when I said that like this idea of bodily listening is hardly new the touchstone for me is Pauline Oliveros who I also had a chance to to work with extensively in the last 10 years or so of her life and for Pauline you know this famous concept of deep listening was partly about intentional listening with your ears to sounds both in a very focal way, in a very global way, and listening all the time. But it wasn't just about hearing. She did extensive work with people with um, various impairments and disabilities. She she counted in deep listening exercises. She, she said, listen to the sounds inside your body, inside your head, how things are feeling in your body. And she wrote about her experience of improvisation as in terms of, of the body responding before the mind, right before the rational brain. And she was very interested in the kind of emergent science around this, this idea of evoked potentials where you know, if, if there's a stimulus and your body receives it before your brain does. I don't know this well enough to weigh in, but she was very interested in that idea because it felt true to her improvising. So if we think of improvisation as just intensive responsiveness, and if we think of listening as attention, attention and relationality, then bodily listening in place is is just a kind of... uh, enhanced version of being there right it's it's like like all improvisation it's completely ordinary but we're we're putting a kind of um heightened sensibility on it in that moment of performance and paying attention very carefully to the body and and for me uh, if i could just add that's different from Murray Schaefer's way of thinking about environmental musicking because I think in Schaefer's idea of soundscape uh, and and the theatre of confluence, it was all about reaching out to the environment and working in and with the environment, whereas I think of this score as, uh, as bringing that home to my body, your body, whatever the body is that's doing it. I would love to see this piece interpreted by people with very different types of bodies, mobility, capacity to respond in different ways, different ways of perceiving the world. I would love to see uh, iterations of the piece that were drawings or writing, that were that were uh, all visual movement or any combination of things that that just feel right to that expressive body's experience of this kind of listening.
0: So in some ways, listening is internal thought, uh, but internal thoughts in relation to some external stimulus um, that's not necessarily conversation.
1: I guess so, but thought suggests... um, Boy, I'm really just trying to grapple with this with you just now, because we haven't spoken about it in this way before, you and I. I. When you're improvising, you don't have time to think, right? So it's not like you're, you're, you're uh, say, I'm uh, listening to the soundscape and then I don't go, huh, there's a bird. That bird's making an interesting sound. I can do something in response to it. Like that, if that's happening, it's happening so fast and in some deep part of your consciousness that you're not aware of it. It's, this is what I, what I think Oliverus was getting at. It's just like your whole body just responds. So it's, I think it's responsiveness that's on a plane that that is exceeds uh, verbal consciousness, exceeds rationality, exceeds the intellectual in so far as, as uh, my brain is part of my body, then yes, it's engaged, but I, I don't think one would have to have a kind of language consciousness to, or, or even a, well, we, one of the things one could look at in thinking about bodily listening in place is, uh, say a baby. Babies are brilliant responders to their environment. you know. Uh, I remember my my baby daughter a long time ago now I remember when she was acquiring the ability, exploring the ability to use sound and she would spend a day on one sound. She would lie in her crib and just go (laughs) and she'd obsess about it and and you know that that wasn't just the sound it was the feeling of her lips buzzing that way it was a the reactions that she got from us it was the feeling of her body and her cot i think that this idea of bodily listening in place is completely intuitive to a to a pre-verbal person
0: right right just going back to paulina oliveros for a second is that her work with people uh with other alternative mental abilities how that uh affected, influence maybe her thoughts on deep listening. Uh, was that articulated in her work?
1: Oh, very much so. Um, so the project that, uh, that I got to work on her, with her, and with a lot of other amazing people, uh, was something called the, the Adaptive Use Musical Instrument, or OMI. Now, OMI is just a simple sampler. It's an online uh, uh, sampler that uses the camera tracking technology that when it, we started was just available in laptops and, and phones. And the idea was that uh, a cursor could be attached to a, a mobile part of the user's body. So suppose I can move my head, I could look at my image in the screen and attach the cursor to my nose. And then when I move, that would trigger sounds and samples in a bunch of different ways, and, and a bunch of different kinds of sounds, from a piano keyboard to you know orchestral sampling sounds, to loops, to percussion sounds, to funny cat and dog kind of sounds, anything you might find on a kind of sampling instrument. And the idea was that it should be very, very easy to use for somebody that had the least voluntary mobility. So the instrument's come a long way. It's been developed uh, in a bunch of different ways, and, and it's a free download. Uh, and the iOS version is probably the most developed at the moment. Uh, that was created by a guy named Henry Loengard, um, And so anybody can just Google uh, omiapp.com and, and they'll find all about this international project. So Pauline was working with people who had very little mobility and of course there is a it's not a completely independent instrument because somebody has to set up the computer if you have no mobility somebody has to work with you to help you help understand what your preferences are sonically and what works best for you in terms of movement and the people that we worked with with various disabilities became co-researchers because they really taught us what what kind of parameters would be useful in this instrument. And by and large, we noticed that they played it better than we did. You know, we would want to be too quick. We'd want to make big changes or we'd get too repetitive. And and I have witnessed amazing improvisations from people who are nonverbal, limited mobility, um, who we may not have much knowledge about what their cognitive, um, abilities are or or how they work and how they perceive. But you can hear it in the music making, it's how responsive it is. It's quite remarkable. So yes, I do think that 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 work, which Pauline was very passionate about in the last years of her life. uh, And again, I emphasize it was a big team. uh, I think that work really did affect and resonate with her concept of deep listening.
0: That's that's an interesting notion. I was wondering if you could give some examples of how that, uh, how those kind of outcomes that you remember.
1: Uh, well, yes. Okay. So the the first person that we worked a lot with is w- was a, a a woman with cerebral palsy named Anna Maria, and Anna Maria uh, was a student at Abilities First School in Poughkeepsie, New York, working with uh, this amazing drummer and occupational therapist, Leaf Miller who's the person who first asked Pauline to to come up with an instrument that students could use without it being hand over hand. In other words, without somebody having to manipulate a a person's hand to hold a stick, for example. And watching Leif improvise with Anne-Marie, Leif with a little drum and Anne-Marie with the Omi, was to to hear this kind of uh, commentary, this dialogue, that had elements of, uh, you know, uh, the kind of of shifts in texture and density that you would find improvising with anybody else. So things going faster, faster movement, slower movement. Often, Anna Marie was able to relax her body, which could very often become quite locked up and quite tense. In the music making, she was able to relax enough that she could then more intentionally, slower more deliberately make sounds. And and what, what was just very apparent to us all was the fact that this was a dialogue going back, that Anne-Marie was responding to the drumming. Yeah. But I I think one thing I want to say to go back to bodily listening and place is that one of the big benefits I'm getting from this practice, from decentering sound and audition from my music making, is that the music itself is changing. It's given me a new perspective on improvisation. I find that I'm playing fewer notes. Uh, I'm staying with gestures longer. I'm I'm aware of more subtly changing textures and timbres and and this is so it's changing my habits as an improviser it's making me kind of slow down a little bit and 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 something I think all improvisers really value it's booting me out of some habits some licks that I tend to default to right you know it's giving me not new ideas, it's not new material for me to use. It's just that the material is a byproduct, that the, the music is a byproduct of this attentiveness that I'm trying to practice. And so it can become something else. It can be it's, it's I feel like it's I'm not making it. I feel like it's it's emanating from my body as a result of this kind of listening. And maybe that's I haven't thought about it this way, but maybe there is a kind of lesson from Anne-Marie's way of improvising there for me in, in this process, yeah. Uh,
0: it, yeah, that makes me think that, you know, of uh, improvisation in a way of a kind of daily practice or as a discipline or that, you know, it's not one single performance, it's rather a kind of con- a continuum of ongoing performances. Um with this project, we're inviting people to capture this in some recorded form, um, whether it be video or audio or or uh, or a, a, a page that you draw on or whichever. Um, and so that uh, that that notion of capturing performances is that different, approaching it this way than it would have been if uh, you know if you just. Uh, you know, played your licks uh, in a studio, and recorded Fush.
1: that. Oh yeah, for sure. So that's b- baked into the score, and that comes out of the process that I followed before composition of working with uh, Tiffaney Giraud and Paula Bath of Spill Propagation. And Spill Propagation, as you know, is a, a center for signed language arts in Canada. Um, the, their partnership is beautiful. Uh, Tiffane is is deaf. And Paula is hearing, and they uh, they work in their artistic practice to bridge those cultures of hearing and deaf culture. Um, so they were wonderful dramaturges in a way for me, or wonderful, wonderful uh, consultants to develop some of these ideas. So our process, which which they suggested, was record some music, record an improvisation. that that really expresses you, what you really like, and send it to us in mp3. And then they got in touch with David Beaubier, who supplied the Woojer vibrotactile vest to them. And Tiffane was able to listen to the music that I sent with the vest. Now, her process upon Perceiving, I call it listening because I think it is listening. It was feeling the vibrations from the vest, and also because the vest is not designed to pick up high frequencies like the flute. Um, uh, it was it was also helpful for Paula to um, to touch the piece onto Tiphaine's back, which I find an extraordinarily beautiful idea, uh, a kind of uh, interdependence, a kind of reminder that we're never alone in in listening and creating, we're we're always in relation. Tafane then described her experience of the pieces, and then drew them in, on big sheets of butcher paper, and in in kind of narrative form. She's a storyteller, and what she had to say about those pieces was, to me, just remarkable. It it I I could I could. I could see that she had captured what I thought I was hearing in the way that she talked about what she had perceived, even though it was in a a kind of narrative form, uh, conveyed form, structure, texture, timbre, line, all of these musical parameters. So then she, she sent me the, the vest and the, the butcher paper scores, or the, what I thought of as scores as big drawings. And she also did a lovely thing. She let me borrow a, a bronze singing bowl and two really beautiful, heavy basalt rocks, and said, look, put the rocks in the bowl, fill the bowl with halfway with water. And then, you know, when you strike the bowl, what happens is you get all these vibration patterns in the water. And and to her, that was a visual representation in motion of what she had been sensing through the vest. So a couple things happened. One, I used those scores in an iterative fashion to make more improvisations. So they became a kind of response. And I improvised to them, not just sonically, but, but deliberately with motion, with movement. No, I'm not a dancer. I'm a 59 year old short fat person. And I, am not, I am not an elegant kind of uh, mover, but I was very um, I found it very freeing to, to, to just respond to those materials because they've been so generous right from, from her. So we've gone back and forth iteratively that way with, with these materials. And um, one thing I noticed when I put the vest on, and tried to feel this music or indeed any music. I, I even put on uh, s- some hip hop because I understand that these vests are made for video gamers. And so they're really designed to pick up bass frequencies, not, not higher frequencies. And I could feel it. I could feel vibrations. But to me, it just felt like thump, thump, thump or, or buzz. It I could I didn't get anything like what Tufain had from it. So I realized, you know, I have a deficit. I, I do not have a well-developed haptic sense. Uh, and, and I know that I don't have a well-developed visual sense, right? So so I'm you know, try it's it's very humbling to find out that things that you take for granted that you're like just pretty bad at. So I think I think this changing this listening habitus is a matter of developing new sensory dexterities.
0: Yes, it's uh, not just um, overcoming the visual dominance, but your particular auditory dominance as a musician in this case. uh, Yeah, yeah. hmm.
1: So, so I'm inviting people in the score to, okay, look, uh, first go to this place, spend time in it, go back to it, spend about a week going, going to it several times, especially if it's not a place that you already know really well. But it doesn't have to be a, a place in nature. I, I did some of my work in a patch of sunlight in my music room that, that I found really lovely to put my body in. Um, uh, just Just pay attention to it. I took photographs. I wrote about it. I thought about it. I I played in it, so that I just kind of absorbed that place as a as a as a, and particularly paid attention to my body in that place. Right then, before you start your improvisation. We're inviting people to spend a little time moving your body as much as you can, the way, in any way that makes sense for you. This could vary enormously depending on on what your, what that particular musician's body needs to be doing. But just, you know, this is hardly original, right? It's what lots of people do. It's just, but just spending time kind of getting your body um, oriented to that place. And then start to listen. And the listening is this this listening with your whole body, listening spatially, listening intersensorially, really getting a sense of how your body is perceiving all the available sensory information that's around you. And only then start to improvise. And, and of course, all this when you read a text score can sound like a complicated set of instructions and how am I doing it right? And what am I supposed to, And I would really encourage people not to worry too much. <laughs> like really, it's show up, pay attention, express yourself. <laughs> and yeah, and, and just like doing that again and again can be extremely satisfying and capturing it in any way that, that you want to. So um, I set up a video camera and just let it run so that I didn't I didn't get too precious about uh, um, capturing a performance right um, I think it's fine if people want to edit a performance or a series of performances in that place and, and edit them together. And I think it would be fine for uh, uh, an interpretation of the piece to include multimedia. To be sonic and video, or to include, as I say, text or a still image, or you know, any any anything that feels like a, feels like a really honest response to that experience.
0: Right, and I think there was also an aspect getting uh, outside of what you normally do. Yes. Because, um, for instance, uh, I, I was helping you video some of the your performance when you were here. And, uh, you know, you kind of gave me some agency to explore the environment visually, which is not something I typically do. And, uh, uh, and so that, and I think because I'm not a trained camera person, um, might have, you know, maybe, made me uh, uh, respond maybe in a more, uh, I don't know, intuitive way or I didn't have uh, any uh, thing that might filter my my uh, my approach to that, you know, in, in terms of being experienced or something like that.
1: Yeah, I think that's really valuable. Um, so it was dawn and we were in that beautiful little pocket of your woods that is by the lake. And the 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 dominant thing for me was the wind had come up. So it was a little bit later around 7 a.m. Um, so that was really uh, perturbing the trees and things around and the water was very rippling and there was a fierce beam of sunlight across the water and that that was uh, that was just very much what i was playing much of the time and you did the whole video in one seamless shot right so you just moved the camera around and i suggested that you you catch the environment and what you thought was going on in the environment and actually, I really like the way it works with what I did musically I think it was a duet between the two of us and so I mean skill is one thing if if you and I were professional videographers we, <laughs> we would we would it would look you know more professional but but the fact is we're professional sound people and and, and musicians and I'm not a professional dancer and like, all of this needs to go out the window because it's really just about um, uh, allowing yourself to to foster that new perception, that new that new sense of engagement with the environment. So, I, I'd like to ask you: How did it feel to you? To were you aware of yourself manipulating the camera during that performance? What was going through your mind?
0: Uh, certainly, yes, because I was still trying to maintain some kind of steady uh, image. Uh, at least I had that. Uh, Preconception that I was working with, um, and remembering the the different uh, options I had on the tripod to move it certain ways, uh, so that it had some control of freedom, but it was still a smooth movement. So there was that technical aspect going on, and then taking a, a view outside of the camera every now and then to see okay what else, else is going on to give me kind of a um, a destination you could say uh that uh that i could you know work towards uh, 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 capturing or playing with in in the image so it was a little bit of figuring it out as i go and a little bit of responding to the environment uh you know at that time because i hadn't experienced the waterfront in that way uh before of uh you know usually i i want to uh run and hide when the wind comes in because i'm you know, I'm trying to figure out a place I could put my microphones that where they won't get <laughs> obliterated by the wind. Right. <laughs> uh, but in fact, so, the wind so, is
1: a very <laughs> the wind is a major character in that piece. Isn't oh it? yeah, yeah, yeah. But. So
0: we were fortunate that it didn't. Um, it, it was uh, you could hear it, but it wasn't. Uh, it didn't, uh, you know, blow into it or something yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, in a bad way. Um, so it was, uh, it played the mic in a nice way. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. And and the mic was that beautiful ambisonic eight channel mic. So it, it, one thing I loved about that is that the, you know, the flute can be difficult to capture out of doors, particularly in the wind as I alluded to earlier. And, and that microphone seemed to get things from a bunch of different angles and, and in a way that provides a kind of, um, uh, like a resonance that that would not be apparent if we just use my zoom recorder to, to capture it. Because we know of course that sound is not um, here stating the obvious again that sound is not only a medium that works through time it, it is a spatial medium. Our perception of it is is entirely spatial. that's what what makes uh, sound a really interesting phenomenon for musicians is that you are you' you're hearing it from a bunch of different angles right and and I, I think that's true for things like feeling um uh one of the things i find by really paying attention to my body in place is the sense of the ground underneath my feet for example i've spent a lot of time just playing with that while playing just moving my toes around or some small movement that wouldn't throw me off balance but that would just kind of make me uh, more sensitive to that idea that yeah you're you're i'm, I'm on this ground i'm I'm standing on this ground, my weight is on it. The texture of the ground is affecting me. I think these are things, of course, that dancers understand entirely, but we don't always, you know, have that kind of sensory um, uh, awareness as a musician. So it's the same kind of thing that you're talking about with the camera, is that you're trying, you know, yes, we're using our expertise. We're, we're trying to make a piece. We were. Doing a recording that we'd invested a bunch of time and effort in, we'd gotten up really early and you know, all of that, but but at the same time, in the doing of it, there has to there was a sense of playfulness I felt, and and a, um, I was not paying attention to you. I have to say, I maybe that would be something different to really do bodily listening in place as a group piece and and be more aware of the relationality of you know, people in that space.
0: One last thing uh, I was going to ask you is um, who it's for, the outcome. Uh, When someone realizes your tech score or when you did your uh, performances uh, and and each time you do it, uh, is it it for a purpose, a person, you? uh, How how would you uh, define that?
1: I think it. Thanks for asking that question because I have thought about this a little bit. For me, there's two things going on. For anybody who does a realization of this piece, I hope it's for you. I hope it's for them, right? So, in my practice, it's been very much about trying to kind of change my consciousness and to, to, uh, in an embodied way. Start to enter a dialogue between hearing and deaf cultures. That's my own motivation. And part of that though has been thinking about: okay, so who if if I'm going to record this, if I'm going to document this work, how is it accessible? So I hope that um, that some of my work is visually interesting to somebody who is mainly a visual person. I hope that the sense of movement is there. I hope there's a sense of tactility and texture as much as you can get out of a video. So that, that sense of making a work available across a wider spectrum of bodies, that that I think is part of, of what I hope to try to achieve with an ongoing work in this. Um, and as you know, I, I did, I did take a couple of little steps towards that. So we did a piece at dusk by your fire pit where, uh, where I was intentionally trying to create a, a, a version of the a bodily listening in place that would have lower frequencies. So I used, a, I used a guitar pedal um, harmonics pitch shifter, which can shift pitch up or down, but using it down between a, uh, very tiny intervals of a second right down to three octaves below so you can change it and so we we had a a portable speaker outside and then you dragged up this huge maple syrup barrel from from the ravine beside your house (laughs) and that was brilliant because that gave us something that um and i think initially you were thinking like a sound person you thought well maybe this will be an amplifier for the speaker will it change the the way the sound projects, we put the speaker in front of the mouth of that barrel on its side, and it didn't make any difference at all to the sound. But but it became a, a it became a drum, so that the piece that we made has lower sounds, buzzy, textural, grungy kinds of sounds that that I was thinking of those transducers that are calibrated to lower frequencies, uh, and also um, more percussive sounds using the drum. But the drum also became a kind of uh, something that I was feeling in the improvisation. I really liked that too. It, it was rusty and a uh, feeling of sticks in my hand and on the drum or rubbing my hand on the drum. These things were were inspiring information for the performance um, and also uh, uh, a sonic part of the performance, the scratchy sounds and thumpy sounds of, of working. With with the drum and I am not a professional percussionist either, but but I didn't worry too much about that. I just I just I just let myself go and interact with it. So so yeah so so trying to make a piece that would hopefully will be legible to the transducers in David Bobier's uh, uh, interesting sounding pillows that he's been making, and that as part of an exhibition at the Nasa North Gallery in South River will allow someone to experience the piece both fiber tactilely, visually and, and, and auditorily.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um I think I think ultimately it's about allowing yourself to play and and not judge your uh your actions so much, you know. Uh which sometimes we overjudge everything and we over question, and we kind of straightjacket ourselves and uh, and I think that also allowing for like you mentioned with the vibrotactile aspect is that things can um, uh, be experienced on levels that we're not aware of when we're making them or doing them that uh, uh, that to trust that what you're doing opens up a possibility of an experience that you didn't intend to make while you're making it and and that you know, so there's an alternative uh, 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 experience that comes out of it.
1: Yeah, and 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 an added dimension, you know. Yes. So uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So I think I think for a hearing person to use those pillows and feel the piece would would really be an amazing experience. I can't wait to come and and, uh, and, and try
0: that. That was Ellen Waterman and myself, Darren Copeland, in conversation on Making Waves. We look forward to joining you again a month from now in a show that will explore vibrotactile audio systems. These allow for sound and music to be accessed by deaf and hard of hearing persons.